You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. Well, we are glad to have you back with us today for part three of a series on restoration. This is Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. And for the past two episodes in this series, we have been looking at biblical restoration, New Testament restoration, this whole idea of getting back to the original pattern, the original blueprint, the original idea for what God wanted for His church and what God wanted for His people. And so far we've looked at the concept of restoration and how this idea of getting back to an original blueprint or pattern is not an idea that is become mainstream within the last 100 years or even 200 years, but it can be traced all the way back to the beginning in the story of creation and the book of Genesis and even through the kings and the prophets. And today we're going to continue this series by looking at one of the great pioneers in the American restoration movement. Before we get there, I'm glad to have back with me today my dad, Danny Hawk, who has spent a lot of time and a lot of years in his life studying the restoration movement. Dad, we are glad to have you back with us today. Happy to be back. So last week we kind of opened the door to this idea that as we look at America in 1776, um, churches in America looked very differently are very different, obviously, than they do today. And we kind of talked about this uh, historical, well, historical precedent and movement where there are four different groups who are thinking about going back to this idea of restoration unbeknownst to each other. Is that correct? That's correct. And I think that's the real interesting part of it, at least it is to me, Jacob, is we got to remember in the you know, late 18th century, there was no telephone, there was no television, no uh, internet, no social media, no Twitter, nothing for these people to communicate with each other or to even know the other existed. Mm -hmm. And in different geographical areas of the uh, colonial U.S., several people had the same basic idea during a 20-year period uh, without even knowing the other existed. And it's pretty interesting Mm -hmm. how they all came up with the same idea. Obviously providential. Uh, God is involved in that. Uh, To what extent, we aren't sure, but obviously God is at work. And we talked about four big movements. And in last episode, if you have not listened to that episode yet, we encourage you to go back and get caught up. But there was the O'Kelly movement and the uh, New England movement movement is that correct that's correct james o'kelly and then up in new england uh 
Abner Jones and Elias Smith. And we talked about the concept of state churches and how when people came to America, this predates the O'Kelly and New England movement, but when people came to America in search of religious freedom, that sounds really good in the history books, but that wasn't exactly the case because the state really still did control what type of church existed in each colony. Is that also true? Nine of the 13 colonies had what they call state churches, which meant if you lived in that colony, you had to attend that church. Okay. So today we're going to talk about the third of the four big movements, and uh, this movement centers around a man by the name of Barton W. Stone, uh, often called the Stone Movement, as we study the Restoration Movement. But, Dad, as we begin, who was Barton W. Stone? Well, Barton W. Stone was uh, he was a son of a pretty well-to-do farmer up in Maryland. And in 1779, Stone's father died, and the family moved to Virginia. The estate of John Stone, who was his dad, was divided among the children, one of them being Barton W. Stone, in 1790. And Barton W. Stone decided what he wanted to do with his inheritance was he wanted to get an education, Hmm. a formal education. So he enrolled in a school uh, in North Carolina, David Caldwell's Academy. David Caldwell was a Presbyterian minister, and obviously his religious beliefs were very prevalent in his school. This was a school that would be very similar to what we would say today, uh, a a school to get a complete education or, or... uh, what's the word I'm trying to come up with? Uh, university? Uh, yeah, university, but uh, not just a religious university. Liberal it, arts education. Liberal, there we go. Liberal arts education would have been very similar to that, what we would call a liberal arts education today. But David Caldwell being a Presbyterian minister, one of the reasons he opened the school was so he could teach and encourage and influence his students uh, with his faith. While he was a student there, uh, Stone uh, listened, as the whole student body did, to a revivalist preacher, Presbyterian preacher, who came through. His name was James McGrady. And at the end of McGrady's meeting, a revival that he held there, pretty much the entire student body was converted, but not Barton W. Stone. Stone was not converted because uh, he said that uh, McGrady left me without one encouraging word. In other words, James McGrady's preaching and his sermon sermons pretty much emphasized the wrath of God, and Stone said, I didn't get anything positive out of it. And Barton W. Stone actually went through about a year of deep depression. He stayed in school there in Caldwell's Academy. The next year, another preacher, another Presbyterian preacher by the name of William Hodge came through, and he preached a revival meeting. The result of that was Barton W. Stone was converted. Uh, he, he said the, uh, where uh, McGrady had not, Hodge stressed the love of God in his sermons, and it touched the heart of Barton W. Stone. From that point on, Stone's interest turned towards the ministry, the Presbyterian ministry. 
And that would mean, of course, under the Presbyterian structure and the way they were set up, he would have to be licensed by the presbytery if he wanted to preach. So he applied for his license. He was given the assignment of a trial sermon. His trial sermon was on the uh, topic of the Trinity. And he began studying for that and preparing for the trial sermon, he developed some real misgivings about Presbyterian theology. And he was pretty discouraged about that, and so he didn't wait around for his license to preach. He just left Caldwell's school, and he headed up to Washington, D.C. area. When he got up there, he found a job, and he actually got a job teaching in a school by a Methodist minister was running that school. His <coughs> name was Hope Hull. Hope Hull had been present, remembering now back to the uh, James O'Kelly and Asbury, Francis Asbury conflict in the Methodist church that we talked about last week. Hope Hull, being a Methodist preacher, had been there at that big meeting, and he had listened to the, the discussions between Asbury and O'Kelly. And no doubt he would have been influenced by James O'Kelly's ideas and, and commitment to go back to New Testament Christianity and, and uh, no doubt influenced Barton W. Stone with what he had seen at the O'Kelly-Asbury meeting. Later, Alexander, I'm sorry, Barton W. Stone, he returned to North Carolina and he did get his license to preach from the presbytery. He went back down there and in 1796, he actually was licensed as a Presbyterian preacher. At that point, Stone turned to the west. He went through Tennessee. He didn't like Tennessee. Lots of folks from Nashville don't like this quotation, but he said Nashville at that time, he saw it as a poor little village, scarcely without notice. So he turned a little bit to the north then and went up into southern Kentucky, and Barton W. Stone started preaching for two small churches in Concord, Kentucky, and Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Two years later, after he's been up in Kentucky preaching, he receives a formal call from the Presbyterians to be ordained. He'd been licensed, but he wasn't officially ordained. This created some more stress for Stone. If you remember, when he applied for his license and he was studying for his trial sermon, he had some misgivings about uh, the Presbyterian theology. Now he's getting more serious misgivings about certain points of their theology. When it came time for them to ordain him, he was asked whether or not he accepted the confession of faith. That actually was a Westminster confession of faith. Stone responded, I do as far as I see it consistent with the word of God. You can hear there, Jacob, the restoration thought and the restoration notion coming through. I'll accept it as long as it doesn't uh, go against anything in Scripture. Okay, so let me stop you right there because that's a lot of information. A lot of information. Uh, good information, but just a very quick synopsis of what you just said. Barnaby Stone grows up in a family of farmers, wealthy farmers. He takes his inheritance, decides to get a formal education at this David Caldwell Academy, and that was in North Carolina, with some Presbyterian roots, David Caldwell Academy yes. was associated with. 
while he's there, he hears a sermon that makes him go into Great Depression because it's basically a hellfire and brimstone sermon, uh, speaking of the wrath of God. A year later, another gentleman comes, holds a revival at the academy. Stone is converted because this gentleman's emphasis is more on the love of God, but Stone quickly realizes that he has a problem with a great deal of the Presbyterian uh, theology, and he actually, if I heard you correctly, he actually ends up for a little while teaching at a Methodist school. Yes, Hope Hall School. Even though he's been educated in Presbyterian <clears throat> theology. So even before this Restoration Movement technically begins, we see in Barton W. Stone a desire then to break down these denominational walls. Yes, and probably was influenced, as I said, by Hope Hull, mm-hmm. who had been influenced by James O'Kelly mm-hmm. with the O'Kelly and Francis Asbury meeting. Now, a big, a big statement, which we will touch on, I'm sure, in uh, the episodes to come within the Restoration Movement is we are Christians only, but not the only Christians. Yes. And you see this already taking form in Barton W. Stone's heart. Now, Dad, this isn't in our script. We'll deal with this very quickly. A lot of people have a misunderstanding about churches of Christ. We are very much through and through, as a brotherhood, we consider ourselves to be a non-denominational movement of believers. Would you agree with that? Okay. Um, And there are many reasons why people mistake us for being a denomination. Part of that's our fault, some of the language we use. But at the core, churches of Christ, we are non-denominational. And we see this uh, beginning to take form as far back as the 1800s. A man's educated with Presbyterian theology, teaches at a Methodist school, and realizes he has a lot of concerns with things he's been taught within the Presbyterian tradition. So what are some of Stone's major concerns with Presbyterian theology? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith was one of them. He he did not like uh, man-made creeds, man-made doctrines that he had to to uh, attest to. Uh, for the most part, at least at this point in time, it was the clergy. Uh, he will become, you know, right then he didn't so much have a problem with the clergy. He was being licensed into the clergy, but he and others will later come along and say, you know, we. New Testament talks about a priesthood of all believers and mm-hmm. that there should not be a defined clergy. And he had a lot of trouble with unscriptural organizations, organizing. The, he has to go through a presbytery. He has to go through a synod here, the presbytery to get licensed, the synod to be uh, ordained. What is a presbytery for someone who may not know what that is? It was a regional organization of the Presbyterian preachers, mm-hmm. uh, unlike, not unlike, uh, but not exactly like, but we ran into this when we get to the Stone Movement with the Baptist, with their associations. And it was just any organization other than the church being organized as congregations, uh, autonomous congregations under the authority of Jesus Christ. Anything else, any other man-made hierarchy or, or uh, pecking order, mm-hmm. uh, this, these were the things that they had trouble with. Mm-hmm. Also had problems with the doctrine of Calvinism. We're going to talk about that more uh, today as we get into it. And let's hold on to that for a minute. We'll get into Calvinism in a little bit if we can. Okay.
let's back up for a minute. We talked about last week the Great Awakening, mm-hmm. the Great Awakening during the 1730s and 1740s. I want to reflect back on that a minute to try to set the the scene here and the, set the table of the time that's going on. The Great Awakening was a strong religious motivation that had influenced the planting of many of the early colonies. It went back to 1700. Uh, there, after the planting of these colonies, there was a decline in religion. And people got to the new country. They got busy homesteading their places. They got involved as life gets us involved in all kinds of things. It was the same way then. And there was a decline in religion. Uh, some revivals came along in the 1730s and 1740s that history records as the Great Awakening, Great Spiritual Awakening. It began among the Dutch Reformed in New Jersey, and about 1726 it soon spread to the Presbyterians particularly. We talked about this, Jacob, last week. Jonathan Edwards and his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Talked about George Whitfield, the preacher from England who said he could, Benjamin Franklin said of him, he could speak to 30,000 people without a PA system out in Mm -hmm. the outside air. This was the Great Awakening, and it did awaken spiritual interest through the colonies. It encouraged a lot of humanitarian, missionary concerns, There were religious schools, colleges that were founded, but that was the original Great Awakening. Now, where we are with stone and the the times that we're looking at over here, uh, these are the years after the Revolutionary War was fought. And like many post-war periods, there's always a marked decline in religion. And these years, uh, the late 1700s, early 1800s, they have been referred to in American history as being the lowest ebb tide of vitality in the history of American Christianity. That's a quote I'm pulling out. The lowest ebb tide of vitality in the history of American Christianity. Now, i got to tell you, I wonder if how history will record the period of time we're living in right now in mm-hmm. America, you know, if, when somebody else is sitting and doing a podcast 50 years from today, how will they view the years we're living in right now? But that's the way they were viewed then. The churches had been demoralized in the aftermath of the war. Uh, Less than 10% of people claimed any membership in any church. So it was time for another great awakening, and there was one. It's referred to as the second Great Awakening. I bring all this up because Barton W. Stone was very, very influential in the Second Great Awakening. The same year that Stone arrived in Kentucky, to Concord in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, 1796, James McGrady, now if you remember this name, this is the same fellow that came through preaching in David Caldwell's academy. That Stone didn't like. That Stone didn't like. But James McCready, with his strong uh, wrath of God preaching, came west, and he began preaching in Logan County, southern Kentucky, which is south of where Stone was. Logan, Kentucky, or Logan County, Kentucky, 
was referred to, if you go back and read about it in this time, it said it was a lawless frontier. They had more sin than they did civilization. Well, that's pretty rough territory, but that's where McGrady went to. And this is where the Second Great Awakening actually began. It began in May 1797. People came by horseback, wagon, buggy. They spent several days at the revival. (coughs) And this is where the concept and the reality at that point of a camp meeting was born. This is about 200 miles south of where Stone's at. And Stone is preaching at Cane Ridge, Kentucky, and at Concord, Kentucky. And at this point in time, while this great or second Great Awakening is starting, he is really struggling, again, with two problems. One of them is his uncertainty about the Calvinistic theology of the church. Stone will later recall that when he was preaching the doctrine of depravity and human helplessness, and then turning around and trying to persuade the helpless to repent, he said his spirit would be chilled at the contradiction. So he just he could not see a consistent uh, train of thought there. And so also the worsening spiritual apathy in the country was getting worse. And so he was really struggling. Uh, and call back to a statistic real quick. You said a few moments ago, at this period in history in America, obviously less people in America then than there are now, but at this period in history, less than 10% considered themselves to be religious. Exactly. Which is Pretty remarkably low. similar Pretty to low. today, even lower than today, according to many studies. But keep going. Well, Barton Stone, here's what's going on down in Logan County. And so he wants to go down there. And so he does go down there. And when he gets there, he hears the preaching of McGrady, which, again, he wasn't a McGrady fan to start with. But he sees the emotionalism that's taking place down there. In fact, what he saw was what history will record as exercises that were taking place. Exercises were the worshipers were listening. They would be struck unconscious. They would awaken, praising God, jerking uncontrollably. There's records of them barking like dogs, running around. And this was taking place very, very prevalently down there in Logan County. And they were referred to as exercises. Well, Stone, having seen that and experienced that, he goes back up to Cane Ridge. When he gets home in Cane Ridge... He's amazed that his preaching began producing the same results that he had witnessed in Logan County. And the climax of the Second Great Awakening actually occurred at Stone's Cane Ridge Church in August of 1801, when Stone hosted a camp meeting there on their grounds that was a meeting without parallel in American history. Never has been anything quite like the Cane Ridge Revival, very famous revival. By the way, Stone's Church is still standing. There's been a structure put around it on the outside. It's very interesting. Uh, I was there this year early on, and it's pretty interesting to go through, and you can stand there on the ridge. It does stand on a ridge and imagine what it would have been like. There were 20,000 
to 30,000, depending on who you read, people at that revival. Now, if you go through the tour up there that they do have a little tour at Cane Ridge, they'll say it was up to 50,000. That's a pretty big variant between 20,000 and 30,000, certainly up to 50,000. Yeah, I don't think the 50,000 might be right. The historians rate it from 20 to 30. And, you know, I know that's preacher count, I guess, Jacob. <laughs> I don't know. But the, the, depending on who you read, it's between 20,000 and 30,000. This revival continued for six days, night and day, without any break, 24 hours a day. There were about 3,000 of these quote-unquote exercises that he had seen down in Logan County that occurred at the Cane Ridge meeting. And some may say, well, did that really happen? Yeah, it happened. It happened. History records it. Not just a few, one historian, but several historians. Uh, They happened. Now, how do we explain them? What were they? I don't know that anybody exactly knows uh, what I really think happened and what a lot of writers think happened if you read them. you got to remember the uh, environment of these people. These folks lived isolated lives from other human beings. They didn't have neighbors right next door. They didn't have neighbors uh, within a half a mile. A lot of them didn't. (coughs) And they lived in rural areas. They had no electricity. They didn't have any of the comforts that we are used to. They were emotionally starved. That's one reason you could draw twenty to 30,000 people. They were looking for somewhere to go. They were looking for social gatherings. And the Cane Ridge Revival provided that for them. If the preaching got emotional, there was a strong power of suggestion the camp meetings were held at night, out in the woods, no lights. I think you can just imagine being in that setting and people start screaming in the darkness. It might be hard not to get caught up in the emotionalism. Mm-hmm. However, it's interesting to note, and i just throw this in, don't charge for this, there was no alleged tongue-speaking uh, record, nobody even talked about it at Cane Ridge. In fact, there's no record of any tongue speaking in America religiously prior to 1920. Uh, so though there was a lot of emotionalism going on there, it was not the uh, speaking in tongues, un- unknown tongues that you might hear people talking of today. That just wasn't taking place. Well, can we stop right there? Because that's one of the questions I have here. If there's no record of tongue speaking prior to 1920, is that a lack of documentation or is that a lack of the existence of tongue speaking? Well, that's really above my pay grade. I don't know that I can tell you that exactly. I think, personally, it's because uh, it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good documentation about all the details that took place through the uh, Cane Ridge Revival and all the details in many, many meetings afterwards. And I just think somebody would have mentioned it. I think it would have been recorded somewhere had it been taking place. Because that's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess that's dependent upon your understanding of First of Corinthians, the 13th chapter. But that would coincide with how I've always historically understood First Corinthians 13, that once the perfect comes, being the Word of God, the purpose for tongue speaking would subside. Obviously, they have 
uh, tongue, or they have the Word of God in this time period all the way up till 1920. So if America does not record tongue speaking prior to 1920, that would support that argument. I think that's right. What's the explanation for tongue speaking post-1920? <clears throat> well, that's what these people are trying to get away from that we still run in today, and that is people bringing into and adding things to uh, Scripture to worship that's just not there in the original blueprint. Hmm. Okay, well, keep talking to us about Cane Ridge, but I thought I'd stop there. That's that's an interesting Pretty little interesting. side note. Pretty interesting. At the Cane Ridge meeting, uh, again, Barton W. Stone was the host of it. He was the preacher there at Cane Ridge, and they, uh, there was a lot of different preachers come. He allowed anybody to preach that wanted to preach New Testament uh, gospel, but there were five Presbyterian ministers there, obviously himself. Second one was Robert or Richard McNamara, Robert Marshall, Dunn Danlavey, and John Thompson. These were five Presbyterian preachers that were preaching at the Cane Ridge meeting. Because of the emotionalism and some of the things that were taking place over at Cane Ridge, the Presbyterian authorities became very suspicious of these five preachers, and uh, they didn't like them at all. And uh, these five men knew they probably were going to be in trouble with the uh, powers that be, among the Presbyterians. The first one that got in trouble was Richard McNamara. He was uh, charged with heresy. He was not removed immediately from his pulpit, but he was scheduled for a trial before the Kentucky Presbyterian Synod. There again, Jacob, we're seeing uh, the ecclesiastical setup that some of the denominations had set up. They had trials for their Mm -hmm. preachers before the Synod. Uh, which was the official group. What did they charge him on? The charge was uh, he was an Armenian. That's what he said. An Armenian is someone who opposes all five points of Calvinism. Richard McNamara said, I'm guilty. And all four of the other preachers said the same thing. The five of them said, if that's the charge, we claim to be guilty. We admit to be guilty. We disagree with all five points of Calvinism. Now, we've talked about this Calvinism uh, several times in the podcast so far. I think we ought to pause here since that's is becoming the big, big thing with these uh, preachers and where they're in trouble and talk about Calvinism. going to do this real quickly. This is no way a, a complete uh, study of Calvinism. But basically, there are five points that usually uh, you'll see when you read about uh, Calvinistic uh, thinking. Uh, We all remember TULIP. If you've ever been through a Bible school, Bible college, Bible major, they're going to tell you the acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, to remember the five points. Here they are quickly. First one for the T is total depravity. In other words, man is born evil, doomed, condemned, bad. The U is unconditional predestination. What this is saying is you either are going to make it or you're not going to make it with God. Uh, And there's nothing you're going to do about it. If God wants you to be saved, you will. If he doesn't want you to, you're not going to be. It was an unconditional 
predestination. Which is exactly why, going back to Barton W. Stone, who had heartburn with Presbyterian theology in that quote, he was chilled to the bone. How can I encourage someone to repent if it doesn't matter? If it doesn't matter. To begin to with. Keep going. It gets worse for what he was saying there. You're exactly right. The L is for limited atonement, which means if not everybody can be saved, then Jesus didn't die for everybody. He only died for the elect. The fourth one is the I, it's irresistible grace. That means when time comes for you to be saved, if you are a part of the elect, you're going to be saved. You don't have to worry about it, which gives you some more reason why Stone saw the inconsistency. If people don't have a choice themselves and there's not anything they can do about it and it's just going to happen regardless, then why am I wasting my time preaching to them? And why do we have missionaries? And why do we have missionaries? And then the last one, the P, was perseverance of the saints, which is better known as once saved, always saved. Well, those, again, that, that's a real small uh, look at it, but that's pretty much the doctrine of Calvinism, and that's what these men were looking at. So the other four ministers, after Richard McNamara was uh, being uh, told he's going to be tried by the synod, the other four guys, they see the handwriting on the wall. And so before McNamara could be tried by the Presbyterian Synod, the five of them sat sat down and they wrote a document denouncing the Presbyterian Synod, and they walked out carrying their congregations with them. Uh, This was a big, big, big deal in the Stone Movement, how they at that point severed their ties with the Presbyterian denomination. Now, what are they going to do? Well, they've walked out there, and that's the beginning of the severing of their ties because we've talked about this before, Jacob. These men, and like anybody else, if you've grown up knowing something for many, many years, you don't just make one major jump from A to Z in one jump. There's a lot of steps in between, and they're growing in their knowledge, they're growing in their faith, they're growing in their convictions. So they hadn't got just to the point of walking totally away from the denominational structure. They thought since we've walked out uh, of this, we ought to sit down and organize our own organization. And they prepared a defense for their action. They formed what was called the Springfield Presbytery, and they wrote a defense for it entitled An Apology for renouncing the jurisdiction of the Synod of Kentucky. It's interesting to note that one section of the document that was written by Stone argued that certain teachings in the Westminster Confession of Faith were contrary to Scripture. Now, what's interesting to me about that, if you remember when he was first licensed by the Presbyterians, they asked him if he would... Uh, if he believed and would he hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And his answer, Jacob, was, I will as long as I see it consistent with the Word of God. Well, now he's writing this, and he says it is contrary to Scripture. So that's a big movement on Barton W. Stone's part. Well, what happened to the Springfield Presbytery? It was a short-lived body, if indeed it was ever a live-functioning organization. Within five months of its formation, the five preachers decided there was no scriptural authority for an organization, and they abandoned it. So on, on June 28, 1804, 
they signed, which is now very famous document we have in Presbyt in the um, <laughs> in the restoration documents. They signed the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery, which disbanded the organization. This was a serious document, earnest in spirit, yet it was written in a very satirical style. So, if you want a few quotes, would you like a few quotes from that? Sure, give us a few quotes. From that document. Here's some of the things they said. They said, We will that this body die, be dissolved, and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. For there is but one body, one spirit, even as we are called, in one hope of our calling. They said, We will that our power of making laws for the government of the church and executing them by delegated authority forever cease, that the people may have free course to the Bible. You hear this go back to the Bible thought. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people, as they have free course to the Bible, they adopt the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We will that the people henceforth take the Bible. Here we go. The Bible is the only sure guide to heaven. And as many as are offered with other books which stand in competition with it, may cast them into the fire if they choose, for it's better to enter into life having one book than having many to be cast into hell. Mm -hmm. Again, it was written with some satire. There were a lot of other things said. Other items in the last will and testament were obvious thrust at the Presbyterians and their treatment of the revivalists. The authors stated that the candidates for the ministry should obtain their license from God. You see where it's rather than from the, the Presbyterian um, hierarchy. They should obtain their license from God and they should preach the simple gospel without the traditions of men. Well, let's stop there for just a second, just so we can kind of give context what's going on. They've broken away. They struggle with Calvinism. They don't like all the creeds and traditions of the Presbyterian Church. But as you're pointing out, yet they go back to an old habit here of writing a last will and testament, even though they are saying in this last will and testament, all we need is the gospel, all we need is God. Um, that's where our, our authority comes from. Is that correct? Yes, yes. But actually, what they did, uh, the last will and testament was the, their total severance. Mm -hmm. I think what you may have been saying is they kind of became what they were running from when they established uh, the Springfield Presbytery. They felt like when they left uh, the, the Presbyterian uh, Senate and they all pulled out of there that they needed to set up their own presbytery. Sure. And uh, they did, and they had it for five months. Then they said, no, this is not scriptural, and so they dissolved it. And that's what the uh, res the dissolving of it is. But the last will and testament they still consider to be an authoritative document. No. They felt it was, it was a document written to say we're done, we're mm -hmm. out of here. That's what it was, because they had set up a presbytery, and now they are denouncing it in the last will and testament of it. Okay. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. There no, was, you make yourself clear. There's two steps they did. They formed a presbytery. Mm -hmm. Then they dissolved the presbytery. 
Okay. And in the last will and testament of this presbytery, the decision was to take the Bible as the only guide to heaven. Mm-hmm. And they said, this is all we're going to follow. Well, at this meeting where they are dissolving everything, uh, the thought comes up, what are we going to call ourselves? What are we going to refer to ourselves? And it's real interesting, Jacob, that if you remember back at the O'Kelly meeting when they were trying to decide when they pulled away from the Methodist church, what should we call ourselves? There was a man there by the name of Rice Haggard. Mm-hmm. He said, I suggest Christian because that's what I read in the New Testament and that we should take that name to the exclusion of all others. By coincidence of history, by divine uh, will, I don't know what, what you want to call it. Rice Haggard, same man that was present back there for James O'Kelly, happened to be here this day 10 years later uh, when uh, these Presbyterian preachers are doing this. And Rice Haggard, uh, there at Cane Ridge Church, speaks up and says, I think we ought to call ourselves Christian. And so they did. And so there's another uh, similarity between them and the James O'Kelly movement. And so they have now officially dissolved themselves from any denominational uh, structure, any denominational group. Well, let's jump down to how well this takes off. You said something that within less a year, within less than a year, the Stone Movement has grown significantly. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it does. It continues to grow and, and grows uh, very strongly. Um, they have uh, trying to remember how I thought I had it here somewhere with me. How many churches and how many? Eighteen oh seven Stone could count twenty four churches. Yeah, twenty four churches in four states: uh, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, and Tennessee. So it was growing and growing well. They did have some problems. There is one problem we need to hit before we quit. Okay. We can talk. It's a pretty major problem, and that was the Shakers. The Shakers were a religious group, small group. They were organized in France, later moved to England. A woman by the name of Anne Lee was converted to Shakerism. She was thrown in jail, and she claimed to, uh, have, she was the female form of God, God come to earth this time as a woman, not Jesus as a man, but this time as a woman. The beliefs of the Shakers were very hard to live by. Because of persecution, they moved to America and they settled in upper state New York. The name Shaker came from their highly emotional dancing that they accompanied them when they were worshiping. Uh, And they just, they were a very lively group to say the least. Well, reports of what had happened over in Cane Ridge uh, became widely publicized, as widely as could be publicized in that day, and the word of it got over to the, uh, to the New York, and the Shakers believed that God had outpoured the Holy Spirit in the West, so the Shakers sent three missionaries who walked out to Kentucky. They get to Kentucky, and within a year, actually less than a year, four of the stone preachers, including two of them who had signed the last will and testament, they converted to Shakerism. And the first Shaker commune in the West was established in Shakertown, Kentucky, which is still open 
it's a tourist attraction today. It has a little hotel there you can go and stay at. The Shakers will cook for you. But this was a big blow to the Stone Movement because four of the preachers had gone to the emotional uh, Shaker group. But still, all in all, the Stone Movement, uh, really in a lot of ways, history kind of suggests that that may have been a good thing because uh, the ones that did not convert over to Shakerism had a very, very strong commitment to uh, the Restoration plea of let's go back and be the church we read about in the New Testament. And that's when uh, we say there were 24 churches in four states by 1807 uh, coming out of the Stone Movement. Uh, That year they had another camp meeting there were 47 preachers there, very large crowds, and their theme was, let's return to a non creedal New Testament Christianity. Uh, some of the preachers that were there for that meeting had been associated with James O'Kelly up in Virginia and the Carolinas. When they moved west, discovered that Stone was preaching the same basic principles that added strength to the movement. And as we said when we started today, this Stone Movement, Barton W. Stone, was the second most influential movement in America, to our history at least. Did I hear you say, and maybe I misunderstood you, but are there still practicing devout Shakers today? There's a Shaker town, and yes, there are some Shakers. So it's not just a tourist attraction. You said Mm -hmm. the Shakers will serve you a meal. They're they're still practicing. Yes. How about that? Very, very small group, I would presume. I think so, yes. Okay. So today we've looked at, as you said, three of the four movements, but the second most influential movement in the Restoration Movement, and that's of Barton W. Stone. Yes. Interesting story, and what a what a transformation from growing up as a son of a wealthy farmer to becoming this famous preacher who really in his own right, paved out his own path and wanted to get back to uh, just the Bible as the only authority and the only guide. Dad, one last question very quickly. I included in here, and they use this terminology in that last testament, but they talk about the simple gospel, quote-unquote simple gospel. How would you define, even today, what is the simple gospel? I think, Jacob, you got to define the context of that. You know, Paul will say when he's writing to the Corinthians, it's the, you know, Jesus was born, he died, and he was Mm -hmm. resurrected. And he said that's the gospel in its simplicity. Uh, A lot of other places in the New Testament, I think Paul refers to the, basically the message of the cross, that Mm -hmm. we preach the cross of Christ, and that in its entirety is the gospel. Contextually with what these men were saying at this time, when they talked about we're going to preach the simple gospel, I think what they were really saying was the gospel that is void of man-made creeds, confessions of faith, human doctrines, and anything else. We're going to preach the gospel in its simplicity Mm -hmm. as it's included in the New Testament. I think that would be more what they would be talking about when they use the term throughout Restoration Documents as the simple gospel. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. And that gets back to the beauty of true non-denominational New Testament Christianity. We do not attach ourselves to a man or to a movement. We attach ourselves to Jesus and to Jesus only, 
and the authority comes from his word, not from a creed or a tradition or a local synod, uh, but from, from Jesus and what we find in the text. Uh, Dad, we're so glad to have you back with us. Thank, Thank you, you for giving us your time, and we invite you to join us again for the next episode where we will look at the fourth big movement. Dad, which one is that? I'm going to talk about the Campbell movement, Thomas and Alexander Campbell. A father-son duo and how they helped change the landscape of the church in America. If you have joined us today, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. As always, keep your eyes on heaven, and we look forward to continuing this conversation over restoration very soon. Take good care. God bless. Okay.